The preaching is from Luke 20 at verse 27 through verse 38. Luke 20, verse 27 through 38. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her to wife, and he died childless. And the third took her, in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world, the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more. For they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush, when he calleth the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. For all live unto him. These words return us to the unbelieving challenges that are leveled against Christ Jesus. We saw already the previous, when it is from the chief priests and scribes who were watching and sent spies and seemingly of those who would identify as Herodians, challenging Christ regarding whether or not we should pay taxes to Caesar, a godless emperor who had overthrown, as it were, the independent kingdom of Israel. And we saw how Christ answered most wisely and with reproof as well to those who challenged him, render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. Well, now we have a second wave of challenge and assault leveled against Christ, which now comes from the Sadducees. We have to back up, as it were, and consider that in the day of Christ there was not a monolithic commitment of Jews. There were rather groups within Judaism. And so we're familiar, we trust, with those known as the Pharisees, who were a particular group of Jews who identified with the rigor and the uh, focus of the law and so formed their outward behavior according to that law. And in that, they also added to God's law and took away from God's law, but made, as it were, religion to consist much in the outward display of what man could do. Well, we've talked a little bit of the Herodians, and now we look at the Sadducees. And notice how they're introduced. They are introduced simply by this expression, which deny that there is any resurrection. The Sadducees made up among the Jews of Christ's day something like what are known as theological liberals or liberal Christians in our day. And so there are so-called Christian denominations of our day which similarly deny the supernatural. And they make Christianity to be something that consists merely in the great ethic of the golden rule, love one another, do unto others as you would have done unto you. Now certainly, we affirm that ethic because it's Christ's teaching. We are to love one another. We are to do unto others as we would have done unto us. This is beyond dispute. But what happens, both within the Sadducees of Christ's day and so-called Christian liberalism in our day, is that there is an undercutting of the very foundation of that ethic by removing the foundation of God's Word. Matthew records Christ, in addition to saying what he says here, to saying to the Sadducees, you do err, why? Not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. You reject the Word of God and you live, as it were, merely by unaided human reason. You look and you say, well, it's impossible that there could be 
this great supernatural work. It's impossible that waters could be divided. It's impossible that the dead should rise again. This doesn't make sense. You know, scientifically, and after all, we're men of science and reasoning and understanding. It's impossible. It's never been seen. It's never been done. Not minding the fact that, in fact, it has been done and has been recorded, and many eyewitnesses saw the same. But as in the spirit of the Sadducees, so there are those today who indeed affirm that there is no real miraculous thing. The miraculous is just living in love. That's what is miraculous. In fact, it's not miraculous at all. Miraculous has to do with that which cannot be done by nature, being done by God, the dead rising bodily, the dead sea or the Red Sea being divided, and other such miracles provided. All of which, by the way, tend to affirm the exclusive claims of God in the Bible. So think of this for a moment. It's no coincidence merely that the Sadducees were liberal in their thoughts of who was accepted with God, and theological liberal Christians today are likewise liberal because what they've done is they've swept aside the exclusive signs of the exclusive God who then says the exclusive way of life everlasting is by faith in Christ Jesus alone. Because if it's not true what the Bible says about these miraculous things, then the God of the Bible is not true. And the way taught by the God of the Bible is irrelevant. But, if the miraculous is true, then all of these things point to the truth of the exclusive way of peace and pardon through Jesus Christ. Now, with that as a background, you'll notice that they come as all and every such challenge comes, cloaked in pretended sincerity and respect. And this is always the case, whether among the elite of society or among the most Uh, uh, low in society, they come with this pretended sincerity and respect. And what do they do? Well, they say, Master, Moses wrote unto us as if they cared of what the Bible said. And they quote the essence of what's found in Deuteronomy 25 regarding uh, uh, Levirate marriage, which was Uh, instructed for the purpose of inheritance. So they rightly represent this. Moses says, If any man's brother die having a wife and he die without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. The Lord had established this as a way of ensuring that the inheritance would continue. So in this case, a man dies childless. He has a brother who's unmarried. He is to take this woman as his wife and the firstborn male now becomes the legal heir of the deceased man. And so his inheritance continues. This was a temporary uh, uh, arrangement which was ordained of God for the preservation of the law of inheritance. And so with the passing of the Old Testament economy, this passes as well. But notice, they try to amp up the whole of their case. Listen, there were actually seven brethren And the first took a wife, died without children. It goes on, as he says, through all seven, and all died without children. And you can almost imagine, though their faces are expressing sincerity and confusion and concern, inwardly, they're thinking this is beyond any ability for man to solve because we're going to get him with this. What's the question they ask? Well, they say, last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection... Whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And as with all such objections and oppositions to Christ, it is from a faulty standing that they seek to assault our Lord. So what does Christ do? He responds. He says, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. Of that you've got it right. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world And the resurrection from the dead neither marry or are given in marriage. You've misunderstood. You might have this world figured out largely, but you've not considered what the next world is like. You've not considered that world to come. And so he explains, not much, but a bit. 
He says, listen, in that world, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. They cannot die anymore, verse 36. In that way, they're equal to the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. And then he comes to them further. And he asserts, because remember, they don't even believe the resurrection. And he sees through it all. And he says, now that the dead are raised, because this is really your issue, you think the dead aren't raised. Let me assert it to you. Moses showed at the bush, this Moses whom you assert, the great ethicist of Israel. And isn't it interesting? Theological liberals today love to point out Christ as an ethicist. He's always the one who's the ethical teacher. Oh, that God's people would just live like Christ teaches and not worry about the miraculous, not worry about doctrine, not worry about the truth of these things. And the words of Gandhi are often quoted, you know, if it were that Christ's disciples lived as Christ taught, there'd be more Christians. Well, there may be a seed of truth to that. But Gandhi was not interested in the truth. He was simply interested in ethical living. Whereas the Bible asserts true, righteous living. The true, righteous living is founded upon the truth. Not Gandhi, not Hinduism, not atheism, but the truth of the revealed mind of God. And you'll see this connection in a moment. So Christ comes and says, you love to appeal to Moses, this great teacher of ethics in your mind. But remember what Moses was taught at the bush when he calls the Lord the God of Abraham. What's the significance? It's not the one who was the God of Abraham, but the one who is the God of Abraham. Of course, as you know, at the point of Moses appearing before the bush, Abraham had been dead for many years. And likewise, he is the God of Isaac. Not who was the God of Isaac, but he is the God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob, not who was the God of Jacob, but who is the God of Jacob. And Christ makes the point, for he, God, is not a God of the dead, but rather of the living. And so, the fact Christ is pointing out that God refers to himself as I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob is a testimony that these still live, albeit for the moment, merely spiritually their bodies awaiting the resurrection, but as he is that, their bodies will likewise rise as is asserted. Then notice the concluding point, for all live unto him. Not unto Moses, but unto God. All godly living is based upon the truth of the living God who shall raise the dead. Now, you'll notice that this question is not taken up by Christ to go tit for tat. He simply addresses the essential point and directs our attention to the main and fundamental concern. Notice, they come and they ask, as it is, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? And Christ says, the children of this world marry. Here's your problem. You only think there's this world. That's your problem. Your problem is you only manage your life. You only order your life. You only think through theological questions and ethics as if this life is all that there is. But he says... Notice the language in verse 35. They which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world. Not this world, but that world. There's this world which now is. We're all familiar with it in one way or another. But there's that world which is to come, which is ushered in by the resurrection. Now notice this. The contrast is not between this world and the intermediate state of disembodied spirits before the throne of God. It's rather this world embodied and fleshed, albeit in the state of sin and misery, or delivered from it and yet still living in this world which is touched and influenced by sin, contrasted with that world where again souls are embodied because of the resurrection. So he's contrasting not here and death, but here and the world to come. Here and the new heavens and the new earth. This is helpful for us because, Christian, we often fall short of the full hope of the saints. The full hope of the saints is not absent from the body, 
present with the Lord. That's a great improvement. It's a great comfort. But the whole hope of the saints is our bodies will rest in their graves, still united to Christ, awaiting the return of Christ when our bodies shall be raised up again, perfected in glory, and our souls reunited shall ever be with the Lord. And Christ is asserting the same. And so Christ sees through these things. He corrects them by emphasizing the differences between this world and that world. He corrects them by asserting the certainty of the resurrection. And likewise, He corrects them by asserting the centrality of God. So what we wish to look at is this glorious world to come and the hope that belongs to all who trust and follow Christ. So consider then three things. Firstly, the truth of another world. Secondly, the life in the other world. And thirdly, entrance into the other world. The truth, the life, and entrance regarding that other world. So firstly, then the truth of another world. It is, of course, faint and shadowy in every man's conscience. But as the Scriptures say, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. There's a sense in which all men have an expectation of life to come. You see this throughout pagan religions. There's the afterlife and so on that was very clearly asserted in Roman and uh, Greek uh, uh, thoughts and uh, further Eastern thoughts as well. Uh, It is a common thought in one way or another that after death is something. There's something that comes for the great majority of those who have thought on the topic. But you'll notice it is shadowy and left to unaided reason unclear. But what is clear to us as far as we can understand is the present world. So think for a moment the present world. It refers to the life that is now lived. So the life you're living, this present generation is experiencing the present world. What is it? Well, we have men and women. We have adults and children. We have sicknesses, diseases, death. We have health and wealth and strength. We have good relationships. We have bad relationships. We have all of these things, of course, all of which was begun at creation when God brought the heavens and the earth into existence and formed man of the dust And very early on, what did God do? Well, He saw that it was not good that man should be alone. So He made a help suitable for him, a woman. And He brought them together. Now notice that the first foundation of marriage is the need that a man has for companionship. That's the first and foundational reason. In this present world, it's not good for man to be alone. There is need for help and support in this present world. And then likewise, it was for the enjoyment and mutual fellowship, body and soul, and intimacy, and likewise for the propagation of the world with uh, a godly seed as the Lord would cause them to be fruitful and multiply. That's the life now lived. All of our forefathers have experienced this. And all who live to the coming of Christ will experience this. The Sadducees acknowledge it. And they say, you know, there is this happy time, marriage... But there was a sad time. The man died. And the man died childless. And it happened again and again and again and again. Finally, the woman died. Now what's going to come? But notice, just embedded in that assertion, there's life, there's happiness, there's sorrow, there's death. In many ways, that's the sum total of this world. Everyone is exposed to it. It would do well for us, in our generation especially, to commit to meditating upon the book of Ecclesiastes. Because it so cuts against the grain of self-indulgent life. And yet, it also affirms the rightness to enjoy the good things that God has given us, albeit all under the conscious and deliberate submitting to the honoring and obeying of God. And so it challenges the reckless abandonment to live for our pleasures and lusts, And yet it helps us to see that in this life we're to receive the good things of the Lord with gratitude. That's what this present life is. And yet as full as Solomon is in commending that there's nothing better for a man in this life but to eat and to enjoy the fruit of his labor, he doesn't say that this life is good. Isn't it striking? He says, vanity of vanities 
All is vanity. I want you to remember that. Perhaps tomorrow you have a barbecue going on or you get together. You should pronounce over it. Every aspect of it. The laughter, the fun, the food. This is vanity of vanities. It's not going to last. It's going to pass away. And there's going to be a season of sadness and grief that follows after. This isn't to make us morbid. This is to give us perspective. The best things this life has to offer will be passing. They will be quickly forgotten. That's the best this life has to offer. By the way, that's the best this life has to offer considered as this world is for the Christian and the unbeliever. This world has good things. And yet the best of the things this world gives, full bellies, strength, marriage, children. The Ecclesiastes tells us, you know, if a man has a hundred children, if his wife is as a fruitful vine, yet still it's vanity. If a man gives himself to pleasure, he builds orchards and he builds houses and he brings in manservants and women servants and singers and players on instruments and they have nothing but an extreme life of full enjoyment. Solomon says, still, it's vanity. Do you know what vanity means, children? It means it's empty. It's weightless and ultimately worthless. Think for a moment what the Scriptures are telling us and what Christ is also helping us see. The best that this life has to offer, the things that bring us smiles legitimately, for which then we give thanks to God for, the best this life has to offer is ultimately worthless. That will change our enjoyment of those things. Not to not enjoy them, you understand, that's not the point but to enjoy them for what they are. They're passing trifles. In comparison to what? In comparison to the world that is to come. That's why the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes comes and says, hear the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. Whatever else you do, as you drink wine, as you eat food, as you have children, as you welcome grandchildren, as your job increases and wealth comes, as sickness comes, fear God. Why? Notice what Christ says at the end, all live unto Him. That's the ordering of our lives. Whatever comes to us by way of good things in this world, whatever comes to us by way of bad things in this world, we're to order our lives unto God, fixated upon Him. The problem is, of course, this present world of good things and bad things that we experience is infiltrated by sin and misery. And you get that, of course, in this scenario that seems to be fictitious, though perhaps arguably it could be a legitimate historical reference. This man's brother dies. And without children. Of course, you go back to creation And it's embedded in us that we need companionship. And one of the issues of marriage is to seek children. And when that happens, it's a pain. It's a difficulty. It's something that causes us to weep and to sorrow. And yet it's not just one, it's seven. And the the woman finally dies. What is this? It's telling us that this present world, attended with all of the passing joys, you think of our own weddings and weddings we visited, the smiles upon faces, the beauty of the bride, the handsome strength of the groom and all of those who are there with smiles and food eating and wine being drunk and all these things that have characterized weddings since the beginning of time. And yet now, every one of them that was married is now dead. It's good for you to remember, as Ecclesiastes again tells us, it's good to go to the house of mourning. In fact, it's better. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the feast where there's gladness. Why? Well, of course, it's because God wants us to be dour and sour and upset. No. He wants us to see the world for what it is. That at the heights of our joy, it never will reach and fulfill the deepest longings of men. That's the great error of our day. Men think, if I just got another job that pays better and had better hours, then my life would be fulfilled. If I just had health and strength, then my life would be fulfilled. If my spouse would just get his act together or her act together, then my life would be fulfilled. 
But all of this is to believe a lie because the world is infiltrated and impacted and influenced by sin, which brings about misery. None of this is to deny those lawful pleasures and enjoyment and giving of thanks to God for them. But what it does is it helpfully corrects us to see that these are low compared to the great things which are to come. Notice this present world, in other words, is to be that which helps us anticipate the world that is to come. And this is given us, of course, In the scriptures, and so we've seen this as Christ has asserted it, but the present world leads us to consider the truth of the coming world, which Christ asserts in this way. He says, they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world. Notice two things. That world is yet to come. It's not yet here. Now it's true that those who have died, their souls are present with the Lord. But that's not that world to come. That's what's known as the intermediate state, that state that is between the two worlds. The current world is our enfleshed life. Our soul is in our body, and our body and soul together function as a unit. Death severs that. And so when Christ died, he says, it says that he gave up the ghost, right? This is what happens whenever one dies. However medically we determine what death is, Essentially what death is, is the severing of the soul from the body. There are evidences of that, imperfect and some better and so on, but that's what death is. Our soul departs from our body. And instantly, our soul either goes because of Christ into heaven, or our soul departs into the depths of agony in hell. But that's not the world to come. That's merely the intermediate time between the two worlds. One, in other words, has been, as it were, removed from this world and is awaiting the world to come, while others are still living in this world. But what is that world to come? Well, it's that world which never ends. Think of that. That means this world does end. That should haunt us if we've made this world our hope. That should cause us no peace if we've thought, this is what I'm going, my whole plan, I've got a 10-year, 20, 30, 40, 50-year plan, and I'm going to make it big. Right? Christ asserts that this is foolish regarding that rich man who had many things laid up in store for years to come, and God comes to him and says, you're a wise man. You know, you've made this world your home. What a good man. No, he says, you fool. This day, this night, your soul is required of you. And all of a sudden... In that moment, it's seen for the first time by that man that this world is not the most important. This world anticipates the world to come, and that world is an unending world. Notice what Christ says. He says that these are they who die not. And so he says these that are worthy to obtain the world, that world And the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore. So there's no death. It's an unending world. Now this is something to consider for a moment. What fools our generation display when their whole focus is on a passing world? Think of it this way for a moment, just by way of relative comparison. Many have been to the beach. If you've not, you can imagine being there. Perhaps you've played in a sandbox and you've seen the sand and you've poured water in the sand or at the beach, you've used the water of the ocean or whatever else there and you've made it strong to form into these sand castles, houses and you've etched in windows, doors and you put up little things around it. Now you can imagine a grown man spending all of his energy for a sand castle when he's been provided in this world land, resources, finances, and ability to construct a place where he and his family could live. What a fool he would be because that sandcastle, however well constructed, and you've seen some of these com- uh, competitions where you know, teams of people come in to construct these amazing things of sandcastles, but where are they all right now? Well, they're all blown down. They're all washed away. They don't remain anymore because they're just sandcastles that are temporary. They pass. They have no s- substance that continues 
even in this world. Well, to focus all one's attention upon the sandcastle and neglect the place that they could build and inhabit for the length of their days in this world is to be made a fool. But here's what's happening on a far grander scale. We have young people in churches, we have adults in churches, and we have people outside the churches who think only and exclusively about this world. speak with some young people in various settings, and often they want to talk about, and often it's us who actually provokes it. You know, what's going on in your life? Oh, well, I've got this internship, I've got this job, I'm going to this school, I'm traveling here and traveling there. And we fail to ask them. While we encourage them, of course, that's good, that's encouraging, and so on. We fail to ask them, what preparations are you making for the world to come? We don't ask them that. And that's shame on us. We should know better. We're part of the problem, you understand, in not pushing them to consider there's something more important than internships. There's something more important than six figures. There's something more important than time of leisure in this life. There's something more important than a boat on the water and land to visit. There's something more important than friends and trips and family. As good as these things are, Perhaps it's because we fail to ask ourselves, what am I doing to prepare for the world to come? The unending world. So we think of our retirement. You know, we're younger and we say, oh, I've got to get my finances in order because I, I, I can't. I don't want to live on the government. You know? And what care is the government going to take for me for, from 65 or 70 to 80, 85, 90 perhaps? Think of that for a moment. Most in America are more fixated upon a 15-year span of their decaying life than they are for the unending span of the world to come. It has infiltrated our thoughts that we prioritize. And how do we see our priorities? By our time. We use our time more for this world. Young people do this. They think about, how am I going to have time with my friends? How am I going to do this, what I want to do? And play here, play there, go this, see that. How am I going to... I'm not getting what I want in this world. Well, can we say this with some sense of urgency? Who cares? Because this world is going to pass. This world is going to be done before you realize it. Your trips... You're playing, your games, your friends, your family, soon enough are all going to be dead. And you're going to be dead. And then you're awaiting the endless world to come. The truth of that other world should impact us in this world, which leads us to then the life in the other world. And you'll notice a couple of things. Briefly, you'll notice there's unity of identity. Even the Sadducees in their guile affirm as much when they raise the question, listen, you know, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. Their question even assumes that these seven men remain the same seven in the world to come, and the woman remains that woman. So they don't become this impersonal part of the force. They don't become some you know, impersonal entity. They don't become absorbed into God. It's none of that. These remain what they were as far as their identity. And Christ affirms that, which is a trust, uh, more trustworthy insight given to us when He says, they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, and so on. And it's affirmed as well when he quotes from the book of, uh, books of Moses and Exodus. He says, He calleth the Lord the God of Abraham. So Abraham remains Abraham. Isaac remains Isaac. Jacob remains Jacob. Moses remains Moses. Elijah remains Elijah. Paul remains Paul. Peter, Peter and so on. The identity continues. And so, this is enough for us to realize that I who experience this world, I will be the same I that experience that world. 
There are going to be changes, as we'll see. But notice this. The consciousness we have right now is the same consciousness, the person that we are right now, as to the essence of what we are as a person, is the same person that is going to experience the world that is to come. So we can't hide behind this thought of, well, you know, it'll just be this impersonality of something that goes on. No, I am going to face that world. Why? Because there's a unity, a sameness of identity. And yet, the life in that world does include differences. And so Christ identifies earthly circumstances that are transformed, no longer being what they were. Now this can, at first sight, upset us because all we know is this world. And especially within marriage, when the Christian marriage is healthy and well-functioning, there is no greater earthly support than marriage. And so we can wonder and say, wait a second, what do you mean I'm not going to be married to my spouse in heaven? That doesn't sound good to me. We need to back up and remember, nothing is going to be lost in the transformation that takes place. All will only be gain in that transformation. But it's also helpful to note, what does Christ say? He says, well, these earthly circumstances of marriage will no longer be. So they neither marry. So in heaven there aren't marriages that take place. They aren't married. And there aren't going to be given in marriage in heaven. He says, neither can they die. So death. He's getting at something here. The temporary... Uh, uh, pre-fall circumstances of life in this world are removed at the world to come. As well as the post-fall consequences of sin are removed. And this makes sense when we step back and look at it. Why was marriage given? It was given because, as God says, it's not good that man is alone. Well, who's alone in heaven? The answer, of course, is no one. No one's alone in heaven. There's no hermit in heaven. There's no one who is isolated in heaven. All are in the fullest and gladdest fellowship in heaven. Moreover, another reason that uh, uh, heaven, or rather marriage, was instituted was for the propagation of children to fill the earth. Well, heaven is pictured for us as a glorious land that is filled, that has no need of additional subjects to be produced or reproduced. So the purpose presently of marriage, which is to provide a stable environment for mutual support, for the satisfying of lawful desire sexually and physically and emotionally, and for the production of children to fill the earth, and for God to seek a godly seed in those children, none of that is any longer needed. And so when Christ asserts this, He's not taking something away from us that we'll need. He's simply acknowledging that this great transformation that takes place is now because we're being transformed into a world that is far superior. Notice the difference is caused by the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead brings about lack of need for marriage. It removes the possibility of death. And that because in this way, and we ought not to make more than that, they are equal unto the angels. They They aren't angels. They are equal to them in that they, as angels don't reproduce, as angels don't die, as angels are pure and given unto the Lord, so the saints in heaven don't think exclusively of the disembodied state. Think particularly of heaven and earth becoming one in the resurrected glory of our bodies. We won't be disembodied like the angels, but we'll be like them in no longer needing that intimate companionship of marriage because we'll have such transcendent companionship with God and with all of His people and we'll never die. So the resurrection is the cause of these transformations. This leads us then thirdly to the entrance considered into that other world. If you were to ask the average churchgoer, we can go further than that, if you were to ask the average human, do you hope to live in heaven? Overwhelmingly, the answer would be yes. Now there'd be some cunning fools that would say, well, heaven, you know, 
They'd be like the Sadducees, right? Well, there's no resurrection, so whatever. Always making up a minority, but also displaying the hardness of the foolish heart which says there is no God. But notice that Christ plants within this passage an acknowledged way of entering into that world to come. Notice it is by divine grace. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are given the assurance by the pronouncement of God who called himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's interesting because God didn't call himself the God of Pharaoh. He didn't call himself the God of this Assyrian or of that uh, one in the Far East or that one in the depths of Africa or that one who was inhabiting this continent known as North America. He identified himself by grace with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and those that would follow after, but not just outwardly by covenant, you'll remember. Establishing that covenant which promises are given, he then calls into faith in himself. That the promise of the righteousness which God gave to Abraham would be upon all them that believe. This is fundamentally important. Entrance into that world to come is by the divine grace of God which both claims converts, and saves those who trust in Him. There's no other entrance. You will not enter that next world because you sat in these chairs. You will not enter that next world because your name is on a baptized roll of membership, or because you've sat at the Lord's table, or because you held office in a church, or your husband, or you know, a grandfather, or someone else was in a special place in the church. None of that matters. What matters is, am I God's now by His grace? Am I His by His grace through faith, through Christ who is the resurrection? Notice also, this divine grace prepares a people. And this is why Christ is able to say in verse 35, that it is they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world. That gives most evangelicals in our day pause and say, wait a second, time out. That seems like it's works-oriented. Well, there is an orientation toward works, but it's not works-merited. The orientation to works is this. When God converts and saves a people, He transforms them so that they live for Him in this life. That's why Christ says, He is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto Him. When He makes Himself the God of someone, they start living for Him. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3, If then ye be risen with Christ, and he's not talking about disembodied souls, he's talking about Christians in this world. If you are risen with Christ, set your mind on things above, where Christ is. And then order your life accordingly. Put to death your sins. Put on righteousness. Walk in love. You know, all of these different things that we've considered on Wednesday nights is the outworking of this point. Think of how Christ sets up the last day. He says, the whole world's going to be gathered before me. I'm going to separate my sheep on my right hand and the goats on my left. And on those, to those on my right, I'm going to say this, well done. And He's going to commend them for what? Their faithful good works. Now, of course, merit-oriented people say, see, we're redeemed, we're saved, we're accepted because of our works, which is to obliterate the Scriptures. What's going on is what's so clearly testified throughout the Scriptures. As James says, show me your faith without works. What's the point? You can't do it. You can say it. I'm a believer. I'm a believer. I don't care what you say. I feel it in my heart. James says, well, whatever. I'll show you my faith by my works. Why is he doing that? Because that's what God's grace does. When God's grace converts someone, gives him faith, he transforms that person so that now increasingly, not with perfection in this life, but increasingly, he lives unto God. What's going on? God is showing, small ways and great ways, that this one in whom he's worked is being prepared for that world to come. 
with that in mind, think about how Revelation describes heaven. Nothing comes in which is impure. Nothing. Nothing enters which loves, think of this word, which loves or makes a lie. Now, if there's anything that our world looks upon as rather light when they're the ones who do it, it's lying. But when someone lies against us, all of a sudden it's a big problem. What's the point? Well, we have a place, of course, for murderers. We have a place for the you know, sexual devious. We have a place for uh, those who you know, uh, steal and are involved in all sorts of uh, uh, extreme displays of criminality. But we think, well, lying, you know, really, if I lie, who doesn't lie? I've spoken with people and asked them about their way into heaven, and they say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And you just ask them, well, do you lie? Well, yeah, I lie. And here's the answer. But who doesn't? Who doesn't lie? Well, that's not really a good hope because the Scriptures say the liar goes to hell. That's a problem. Why is that so? It's because... God's grace not only converts a person to give them faith in Christ by which they have an unfaltering, unwavering, and perfect righteousness credited to them, but they are given the Holy Spirit who works within them to will and to do of all of His good pleasure in this world, which is preparatory for the world to come. Brethren, as we close, notice it's the resurrection which is to issue in this world. And this should, of course, reprove the foolishness of a short-sighted world which sets its target upon passing pleasures. And so, of course, we live in an Epicurean culture which makes pleasure its God. And yet, it's interesting, the opposite is true as well. It makes pain its worst enemy. And so our culture makes this work together. Pleasure is the great God. Pain, suffering, difficulty is the worst thing we could ever have. And if my life has any dissatisfaction, well, my life is horrible, right? And that comes and impresses us. But really what's going on in those things is not as some would say, well, it's just illusory or you know, it's an illusion and it's not really there. No, it's really there. There's real pleasure, there's real pain. Ecclesiastes makes this clear. But the problem with our world is it says that's the loudest voice. That's the most meaningful thing. Whereas the Bible regularly asserts, as real as those pleasures and pains are, as real as those pleasures should elicit from us thanksgiving to God, as real as those pains should elicit from us this lamenting and petitioning of God for mercy. Yet there's something which is greater, something that is of more weight, something that is of greater significance than the best pleasure or the worst pain. And it's the hope of the world to come. So I ask you this. What is your real hope for the world to come? Children, what is your hope? Because you're going to die. You may die today. You may die 30 years, 40 years, 50 years from now. Young people, you're going to die. One day, your soul will be separated from your body and your soul will either be delivered into heaven awaiting the resurrection or delivered into hell awaiting the resurrection. What is your orientation toward the world to come? Career men and women, retired people, everyone in this room, what dominates your life? Because for the average American, it's this world. This world dominates the thinking, the planning, the speaking, the acting, the scheduling, everything. That's what dominates our lives. This world, my friends, my family, this dominates. doesn't mean that it shouldn't influence and we shouldn't live in this world and yet not of the world. But what Christ is getting us to think about as He reproves the Sadducees is this. There is that world which should dominate our lives in this world. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, listen, you're dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you appear with Him in glory. The whole Christian focus is that the world to come, 
dominates our present life in this world. Is that the case for you? As you look, for instance, at the summer that is ahead of you, which will quickly pass, as you look at the next five years and you have things planned out, as you look at the next 10 or 20 years and you have some semblance of what you're thinking about doing, I'll get this job, I'll do that, I'll retire here, I'll go there and I'll have this trip and that travel and all these things. I'll spend time with this part of my family, this time with those friends, I'll, this time on my own, I'll buy this house, I'll buy this boat, I'll get there, I'll do all of these things. All of that has its place. All of that has its lawful enjoyment and preparation. All of that needs its attention. But compared to that world which is to come, it is to fixate upon a sandcastle which is going to be washed away. And it's to miss out on the mansion that is held forth to us in Christ. See, the point is, brethren, not forget the world, but live in this world, in this life, dominated by that world which is to come, which will help you moderate your earthly enjoyment in a right way, but also moderate your sufferings in a right way. It'll help you to fixate upon what ultimately matters, to which we're quickly being ushered, so that we could see how privileged we are, whatever we lack as Christians, that we are those, by God's grace, through faith in Christ and His Holy Spirit at work in us, who are accounted worthy to obtain that world. Christian, that's your hope. A world wherein there is no death, no sin, no misery. That's your hope. But if you're an unbeliever, that is not your hope. Because as we read in Daniel, the resurrection not only brings unto glory those who have trusted and by God's grace served Him, but it also brings unto everlasting shame and regret those who have continued in their sins. Christ holds forth to us these things to call us to a sober accounting of our own souls, that we would turn from our idolizing of this world so as to obtain that world by grace, through faith, in Christ, and live then, as God says, unto Him. Would you stand with me for prayer?